0: Hello, and welcome to Signals from the Hill. My name's Stephen Walsh. Coming up, we'll be chatting to Ben Smith, the head of Book and Comics Publishing over at Rebellion. Rebellion's probably best known as the home of 2000 AD, but over the last few years, Ben has headed up a project where Rebellion have brought up a number of comics, archives and libraries that gives them the rights to over a century's worth of comics. Currently, they're in the process of restoring some of the key strips and stories in those comics and publishing them for a new audience of readers. And helping to contextualise and elaborate on the history of British comics and their global influence. But first up, some Avery Hill news. Later this year, we have a book coming out with the incredibly talented Lizzie Stewart. That one's called Walking Distance, and should be hitting the shops in October. But in the meantime, Lizzie has self-published a couple of new titles you can grab right now. Hannah and Alice at the End of the World is a story about two teenage girls growing up in a coastal town. While Two Stories is, of course, a collection of two stories, one about a relationship that reveals itself to be unhealthy, and another one on the relationship between art and the internet. Head over to lizzystewart.bigcartel.com for more details, and that's l i z z y s t e w a r t .dot And now, here's some information on another comics podcast you might enjoy. Need another podcast all about comic topics, reviews, and just general chit-chat? Then join David Robertson, Fernando Ponce, Mike Sadakat, Giuseppe Lambertino, and me, Tom Stewart, at That Comic Smell. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes, and on Twitter and Instagram, at That Comic Smell. Pull up a chair and join us. Some news now from a couple of our favourite shops. Our friends at Page 45 have exclusive book plates for Grumpy Corn, the latest release from Philip Reeve and Sarah McIntyre for younger readers, which looks like great fun. If you don't know Sarah's work, she's a brilliant illustrator of kids' books, and her collaborations with Philip Reeve are always wonderful. Head over to page45.com for information on how you can get hold of a copy yourself. More all-ages fun over at OK Comics in Leeds on Thursday the 11th of April. Where Avery Hill Publishing's own Christina Pashinsky will be hosting an all ages zine making event for the school holidays. That'll be running from three PM till six, and you can find more information on the OK Comics Facebook page. And now I'll chat with Ben Smith. Hello, Ben, how you
1: doing? Yeah, no, very well, thank you very much. Yeah, I was at um, I went to the uh, there's a, a Charles Schultz Snoopy Peanuts exhibition on at the Somerset House.
0: Yeah, I I was over in London just before Christmas and and made a point of going to see that. It's tremendous, isn't it? Really, really good.
1: Yeah, I've got kind of mixed feelings about it. I thought all the Schultz stuff was absolutely wonderful and amazing. But all of the contemporary art responses to Schultz I found so completely superfluous. And it was fascinating to me to see not a single person engaging with any of that and only, only looking at the Schultz stuff.
0: It's really like, why? It's horrible, but why would you, like, when there's shorts originals there? And I thought they contextualized it really well and curated it really well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I presume there must have been some Arts Council money behind it that, um, that they didn't, you know, that they wanted to do it that way or something. But I thought what I did think was interesting though that. But I didn't really. I thought they could have given a much stronger narrative to the kind of the story. You kind of you kind of drift through his life and themes, and I wasn't. I thought he could have. It could have been a little bit more directed, not not in a kind of a forced way, just to give you a sense of like moving you through rather than you kind of picking it up as you go along, as it were. Because we're thinking about. We want to do exhibitions or more exhibitions. And so um, uh, trying to just... I've been to so many comic book art exhibitions now, just trying to, you know, Angoulême and everywhere else, just fathom what the best ways are, depending on how much artwork you have or other stuff, and if there was any merchandising and if there wasn't, and trying to come up with the um, to, you know some ideas about how we could mount things in the future.
0: I've never been to Angoulême, but just looking at people's photographs and when they go there, the, 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 the shows that have sort of struck me over the last two years have been... They did the Eisner one, where it seemed like everything was laid out like a sort of Eisner cityscape. So there were sort of alleyways and shadows.
1: Yeah, that's down in the um, the Musée of Comics, the Musée de Bandes and that's really that, that can be a great space. And I think the Eisner one was the best show that I've seen. I've seen, the, but then I did, um, but then it was interesting. I, there was a Toby Anderson one there, which was really interesting, um, and probably the second best. But then some of the others have just kind of left me a bit cold. But I think that's just the thing. You either have a you either have a physical response to uh, to the artist or you're like, yeah, fine. Which I did. There was there was one, um, there's a, a great French Bondesinae artist who does, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's a character who lives in Roman times. Um, there's like endless books about it. And I was just like, well, I can appreciate that this is good, but it does nothing for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? And like, obviously, it being unglam, there's so much stuff there, isn't it? And that's the other thing.
1: You should, you should. You need to get yourself over there at some point. It's definitely worth
0: it. I made a point last year of going over to Cake in Chicago as a show, and I went to, to Comics Crossroads Columbus, it's called, which is sort of housed around, uh, do you know the Billy Island Cartoon Library and Museum? I've heard of it, certainly. And that's that's an incredible space. And their collection is uh, remarkable. Like, uh, the weekend of the show, they do, like, uh, guided tours of the uh, of the stacks and the archives. Oh, really? They've got, like, Disney animation cells, just, like, remarkable stuff. And um, they've got the stacks, and they're all sort of open, apart from stacks one and two, which are locked and have, like, an electronic pad on it. And uh, I said to the, the woman who's guiding us around, I went, what's in there? And uh, she went, all of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> Oh my god! I was like, keep it locked. <laughs> it's understandable, but that—that's an incredible
1: space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm jealous of seeing that. I mean, so I've actually been doing a little bit of a tour of um, comic book archives as well, because we've, um, because we're installing a new archive in riverside house headquarters of rebellion we um basically we're installing a mile a linear mile of shelving to, to accommodate you know to, to bringing back together all, all of the all of the archives and um as we were looking at how what kind of shelving we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it i, I went up and visited a couple of so the university of dundee have a comics archive
0: yeah i'd imagine they've got a good collection
1: Exactly. So that was going around that with them. And that was very interesting. And then also um, the University of um, London have the um, London College of Printing.
0: I was going to say that they've got the um, who's the guy? It's an individual collection. It's like the only collection of all of weirdo in the UK, I think, or something.
1: Exactly. They've got that and they've got some other stuff. So they've got kind of an
0: expanding collection. But their stacks. Well, they've also got the the Kubrick archive right next door, haven't they?
1: I was going to say their their stacks are adjacent. So we went in to look at the um to the comics archive, which was fascinating. But it was like, and oh, what's this over here?
0: <laughs> well, like the comics archive, I-, I-, I visited it a few years ago, and it might be a bit different now. But like they had like original crumbs just leaning against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> on the floor, uh, they were like, "We still need to file those," and I was like, "Incredible." <laughs>
1: no, I don't think they had that now. I think they've tidied up since then. To us is kind of long but l- less less deep, I think it's fair to say. So, yeah, well, we've we've done it so that we should have extra room because, of course, the the archive as it came to us is is, is has holes in it because you know it's 130 years of comic book publishing, so there's there's, there's bits missing. Uh, the printed copies. Um, and so um, somebody had sliced out comic, um, uh, comic cuts number one uh, from 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 the bound volume of comic cuts, which seems a churlish thing to have done. Uh, so there's bits and pieces. So we've kind of we, we, we've got more shelving than we should need. My goodness knows uh, how long that'll last, because, for instance, we, we just very sadly when John Armstrong, artist on. Um, Bella at the Bar and so many other things, you know, comics for Misty and so many girls' comics. Um he passed away last summer. We were in contact with his family anyway, uh, in advance because we were sending him books for him to see that, you know, finally his work was collected in graphic novels. So he uh so we were in touch with his family. When he passed away I basically I you know, they didn't know what to do with his collection of his own stuff not his artwork but his copies. you know because he, he photocopied in the latter days he photocopied all of his work before he sent the sent the boards off because uh, you know as you know they never returned the boards uh most of the times and so uh, we've got just got this stack of photocopies and stack of also his bunties as well as as well as his jinties and other things so it's kind of like and this, that's kind of like his collection so how are we how are we archiving his collection as against our just our, our standard run of these things and the rest of it, so yeah. There's lots of um it's a journey of
0: discovery, that's what this is. Did the, the Charlie's war pages from Joe Colhu ever get back to you Yes, they they got, they yes, they did. They did, fantastic. So I just remember, and this is a good, good, not a good few years back now, probably about eight, ten years ago, they they had a show with his pages at the Imperial War Museum, and at the time his widow basically offered them the pages because she was like, I don't know how to store these things properly and have the space and, you know, they'd be better served, in, you know, being accessible to people and useful to people. Um, and I just remember at the time thinking, you know, it's odd that there isn't. I don't know what the status of the Cartoon Museum was at the time, but I'm, I'm glad to know that they did end up sort of, you know, Okay. In the safest possible hands
1: in the right place, yeah, I mean, I know they've been selling off some of those pages as well over the years um you know it's it's the nature of the beast, um, but yeah, no, I mean obviously the comic art museum has their has their, some of their lottery funding to acquire stuff, but again, i mean it, when you go to when you go to places like Angouleme or when you see like the university of columbia and and Karen there who who who's acquiring collections and um you know and then and then the Billy Island stuff, and you know when when you see how seriously other countries or other institutions treat the history of comics, and and and, and then you see how, how it's treated in this country, and you just, oh, you have, you have to hang your head and go, why?
0: But then it wasn't that long ago that Jack Kirby's pages were getting chucked out into skips and being used, like mop-up spills at the Marvel offices.
1: You're absolutely right, but over, over the last 30 years, there's been this huge step change and and and, it, and it's kind of it's sad to me that that step change didn't you know hasn't happened here basically yes yes there's there's a, there's an archive in in the you know there's a couple of good archives in the University of Dundee have their you know they they're very you know engaged because they've obviously got their comics courses that they do there as well the movement has started, but it's we're, we're so far behind, and there's such, a, you know. I mean, that's you know, when one goes to France and you just see in 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 the w, their version of W. H. Smith's at the train station these these thick, fat, fat, glossy volumes of magazines about comics, you know, and comics culture and the rest of it, and you just realize there's an engagement with the form that is just is just weirdly um weirdly lacking uh here in 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 the same way which is not to say obviously as we know that the comics weren't hugely popular. I mean I tell you what, I I did a calculation today because because uh, this year coming up in September is the 65th anniversary of Roy the Rovers. I, I I was doing a calculation um of how many comics he must have sold because in, in for 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 decades if anything sold less than 200,000 copies at IPC they uh, they they canned it. So um Doing some back of the uh, envelope calculations, I've realised that um, over half a billion copies of Tiger and Roy the Rovers, so Roy the Rovers comics, um, were sold in the UK alone in that time, and that doesn't include all the translation editions because he was huge in, in Scandinavia and Ghana and Greece and 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 Hong Kong and uh, all over the place. And so just to think that 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 yeah, you know that that you know literally you've half a billion. I mean. It, it baffles the mind, and 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 then you know he he was let to go to rack and ruin and disappear and uh, no longer of course uh, beautifully relaunched, re- refreshed and back on the scene. Uh, but yeah, but it's kind of emblematic of how something can be so 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 influential, so 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 big. And indeed, the fact that Roy of the Rovers kind of is now is so firmly embedded in football culture that you can't go a day, you can't go a uh, you know any kind of. Football commentary, pass any football commentary that doesn't at one point kick into, oh, it's a real Royal Rovers story or it's real Royal Rover stuff. So the idea of Royal Rovers is it really embedded in popular culture, but just then kind of disassociated from the uh, from, from 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 the medium that gave him birth. Well, like, or you know, that's all changing again as we kind of you know reestablish things. But it is it's a strange uh, strange old situation.
0: It's interesting as well just looking at the the sort of fluctuating nature of the the. Comics market generally as well. I mean, I think it was Paul Gambaccini that told me in the fifties. I think it was Delo Key, one of them. Their cancellation cutoff point was a million copies. If a comic sold less than a million, they just cancel it because they figured they could put out something else that would definitely sell a million. Yeah,
1: I mean, it was insane. Well, I mean, I mean, so in, in 1972, um, which was the peak of the the UK comics market, there were 10 million copies a week of comics being sold a week, 10 million a week. I mean, so 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 there was you know there was five million for IPC and five million for DC Thompson and they were just you know egging each other on and it was just like you know when you you know those kind of numbers because uh, I got a chance to um, to speak to um, John Sanders the, uh, the 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 former publisher of uh, the, the, the the publisher of the youth division of IPC and uh, I was like you know I was like, well, why is there why did you guys not like collect them into graphic novels you know when Titan started doing it in the early 80s why did you guys not kind of like start the book trade and he's like but. I, you know uh, kings reach tower had two and a half thousand people working in it and um, and you know they had to think in millions you know a few thousand book sales was 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 chump change to them and you know that 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 wasn't the business it was about, it was about hundreds of thousands and millions of sales and that was just like oh okay i kind of get what you're saying i feel it was short-sighted but i understand you know.
0: Because they must have like they must have got like firm sales figures from doing annuals and summer specials that were collecting old material. So,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, know, yeah, exactly. But it was just that it's really interesting to me. And I think that speaks to why the Fleetway Archive and the, um, uh, the IPC Archive were were so underused over the last 25 years is that. The division of Egmont that it was part of was the magazine's division and i p c was always a magazine's company and literally it, even though it sounds like it's all publishing magazine publishing and publishing there's this there's this gulf between and they don't they don't think about these things in the same way at all to the point where they literally had you know, uh, a hundred, over a century's worth of extraordinary uh, treasure, and um, and 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 only the kind of the vaguest desire to do something with it that didn't include the most obvious thing of sticking it between two covers and selling it into the book trade.
0: We should probably do, I'm going to use probably 90% of what we just talked about in the show anyway, because it's all gold. Um, But we should probably just do a formal hello and introduction just to sort of uh, help me to frame it and structure it a little bit. So I'll I'll do that now and then we'll, we'll get stuck in. Would you like to just introduce yourself to the listeners? Just let us know who you are
1: and what you do. So, anyway, so my name is Ben Smith and I am the head of publishing at rebellion which means I have the enviable job of being in charge of AD comics and graphic novels and the Treasury British comics and royal the Rovers and uh, 130 years of unbroken comic book uh, history and, and and that fills my day from the moment I wake up till the moment I go just sleep
0: and if, in case people were wondering, because it seems you know, so far on on this show we focus very much on Avery Hill creators and Avery Hill comics, but it would be fair to say I think, looking at who's involved with Avery Hill and what we were reading as we grew up, without the comics that you're in charge of now, maybe Avery Hill wouldn't exist, and it certainly wouldn't look the same. As it does, you know these are these were hugely formative comics for the people that, that work at Avery Hill. I think
1: the medium wouldn't look as it does without these comics. And I take, you know, I take no, no personal responsibility for any of this. This is this is this is this is incredible material that we were lucky enough to find ourselves responsible for now. It really is a matter that. So so with the Treasury of British Comics, what we've been doing is publishing stuff kind of from 1970 onwards um, because we, as Rebellion Publishing, have been publishing 2000 AD for the last 20 years. And then um, three years ago, we acquired what was called the Fleetway Archive from uh, a company called Egmont. And that's basically everything um, that Fleetway published from 1970 onwards. And Fleetway were half the British comic book industry with DC Thompson being the other half. And uh, so that includes Battle and Misty and Scream and Tammy and Jinty and Roy the Rovers and Tiger and um, and Buster and Wizard and Chips and Core and Crazy and Pink and Mates and Sally and Sandy and Penny and Pixie and Lindy. Uh, But but then last year, we managed to acquire the the IPC archive, which is basically, uh, and these companies used to both be the same company, uh, but that's everything from 1888 to 1970. So basically, we've got the comic cuts, which is the first comic book to be called a comic. And then that spawned a series of imitators from the same publisher, which were like the Halfpenny comic and various other comics that kind of were the formation of the genre. And then um, uh, that leads to film fun and radio fun, which then leads to The Eagle and to Tiger, uh, which then lead to Valiant and Hurricane and June School Friends. And then you get to the 60s. And, and this where is where it comes back to your question. Um, you have Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill and Pat Mills and John Wagner and Dave Gibbons and Brian Bolland all reading these incredible British comics. And then which is one of the publishers that's then later bought by Fleetway IPC um, is licensing in Marvel Comics but then they're doing their own comics like um, uh, uh, Johnny Future in the, sitting alongside the Fantastic Four and the Jack Kirby and feeling very much of a piece but also in the UK and then you, as you go into the 70s the comics revolution starts as things get start getting gritty and more working class and and, 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 and you know and, and violent but then also deeply emotional and traumatized and traumatic and, and And all of these things uh, that for anybody who was uh, you know a child in the late sixties or the seventies or through the eighties it was formative and a lot of the you know the amazing creators uh, that avery hill have got um you know will have you know Tim Burden, i'm sure and the others you know passed through that, that you know that the pages of those comics um but I also think that there's that there's the companies that you know had had, had i p c fleetway actually uh, collected anything other than 2008 and or and, and and some of the work from Battle. Uh, things like the 200-page nature comic that is Marnie the Fox would have spawned um, a whole sub-genre of, um, of 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 British comics because Marnie the Fox is this 200-page story of a of a fox at large in a vicious uh, English countryside, which is absolutely beautiful, but nature seem nature and man seem to have it in for this poor fox cub. Um, but it's but it's a it's a 200 page love letter to the English countryside, and I can see how that would sit so well with some of your creators that that the people you know could have been inspired by that to go on to do more and other things. But they never got the opportunity until a couple of years ago because up until then it had never been collected. So it's so so it's really fascinating for me to see how some of this stuff has even at second hand through the mind of Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill and and all of the greats. You know, it infor- these comics have informed their vision and then their vision has then informed others, as it were. So it's a kind of it's, it's a cycle. But now people can get begin to get their hands on on the original inspiration, as it were. Um, I think that's going to be really exciting to see how that helps, the, the the you know, helps or at least informs how the medium develop- develops from here.
0: And as you say, the the tragedy almost of the the lost opportunities for British comics with that, not disappearance, but partial erasure in the 80s and and onwards. But the sort of the flip side of that is, you know, I think there's a very clear through line from the, the, the comics that you're talking about there that go on to form... Essentially, Vertigo Comics in America at DC, and then you know it, it completely changed the face of American comics.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you know it is that thing. So so there's there's this narrative that we've been we've been guilty of, I guess, of of, of perpetuating to a certain degree ourselves, which is that that, that two thousand eighty revolutionised British comics so much, and then that ten years later, you know, from 1977 onwards, and then ten years later in the mid 80s you know, those creators go to America and revolutionize American comics and then that leads to vertigo and then you've got the second British wave of Mark Miller and the rest and then that gives you the ultimates and, 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 and you know, and that then leads on to the complete revisioning of American popular culture now. Uh, and, and, and there is that very clear through line of, of one thing developing to another and developing to another. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, it's completely legitimate. But where I say we're guilty of something is that that narrative especially because nothing was there available to counter contradict it in terms of what one could go and read, really underplays all of the comics that, that came before 2000 AD. And there's, a, there's nods to battle and there's nods to, to, to action and things. But actually, the, the, uh, there's this huge tranche of extraordinary, extraordinary work. Um, that, that 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 kind of should have you know that did inform the vision of those creators who were young in the 50s and 60s, you know, and things like 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 Battle Picture Library, not to be confused with Battle Picture Weekly, uh, Battle Picture Library, and War Picture Library, and Air Race Picture Library were these 64-page Digest comics, but they were all effectively 64 page graphic novels with a one complete long story in it. And, and you know, those, those were, and then there was also cowboy comics and spy comics and the rest of it. But you had like Alberto Breccia and Hugo Pratt and, um, and, and, and just an absolute galaxy of international talent. In fact, in the late 50s, early 60s, British comics has, um, has you know is a globalized industry that you've got 50 artists in milan 50 artists in rome 50 artists in seville 50 artists in barcelona all doing pages only for british comics and 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 and, 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 and you have this you know the, in the early 1960s david roach calculated that britain was publishing more comics than any other country on earth because of our weekly time schedules, and uh, and and so more than Japan, certainly more than America, and so and and those comics were then going out in translation around the world with no creator credits, um, and and so you had you know it was an extraordinary extraordinary scale of business, but also extraordinary level of, of creativity in it, um, and so. That really does, I think, really inform where the creators who would then work on 2000 AD that would then lead to the kind of the, you know the, the next phases of, of, of comics development coming from. But it's but, it, but very much where comics where comics got to in the 90s and the noughties is is, is profoundly is profoundly you know uh, you know a British comic story really, and then and and then and then absorbing the American influence and then transforming the American influence and so on and so forth.
0: And, of course, another interesting aspect as well is, you know, it, it's very easy to sort of see uh, 2000 AD as that direct through line to, to Vertigo and, and, you know, uh, other other things like Watchmen, where it's, you know, genre pieces. But one of the things that Pat Mills is always at great pains to uh, explain to people is how important it was that so many of the writers that went on to do 2000 AD had spent the sort of 10, 15 years before that working on... What was classified at the time as girls' comics.
1: No, absolutely. Completely right. I mean, he, you know, it, it is. Uh, it, girls' comics, I think, Pat says that, you know, girls' comics had this emotional through line that that was missing from the wham, biff, pow, kind of much more um, simplistic boys' comics. I think that that's absolutely true, and it's very much the case that, that actually in the early 70s there was a realization that. Um, and, and, and this, is, this is how the publisher of the time um, um, explained it to me uh, there is this realisation that girls wanted to and, and by the way when I talk about girls comics and boys comics that's the language that was used to describe these things and so that's kind of the language that we've inherited so that's what I'm going to use for the, for the purposes of this, of this conversation uh, but girls wanted to cry was basically it, girls wanted stories that would make them cry, that would make them feel sad uh, that may ultimately have a redeeming ending. Um, but that's why the early 70s girls' comics went dark and brutal and slaves of war orphan farm and being kidnapped by aliens and people being punished and things like that. But, 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 but with this, this, this character arc, this, this redemptive, um, thread that goes through them, um, that, that then Pat and John Wagner and others would, would take from the girls' comics and import into the boys' comics. Um, and, and, and that's what leads to, to, to then the, 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 the second revolution in comics in the 70s after the girls' is, is, is the boys' side of things. But it's very interesting that, that, that um, Jerry Finley Day, uh, who's the writer and co-creator of, of Rogue Trooper and, and many other things, um, and um, he was the editor on um, on Tammy, and Tammy was the most popular girls' comic in the 1970s from IPC, and um, and he was very much instrumental in in, in, in that fresh approach to, uh, to to how you tell those stories.
0: I mean, just as a, as a great sort of case study, I think if you look at something like Charlie's War, you know, you, you had decades of... Uh, War comics before that And I remember reading Charlie's War again It was very, very important to me as a comic Because it was remarkable, like nothing else I'd read, you know, tons of the more traditional Sort of commando battle Picture library stuff And, you know, you had things like Characters that were suffering from shell shock And were terrified and weren't just labelled as cowards and if they were someone else would stick up for them and sort of explain how horrible the situation was that they were in. It was, you know, remarkable eye opening stuff and when I was like eight years old and so used to seeing, you know, essentially the propaganda that was war stories
1: simplistic version of the war yeah no absolutely you're right i mean i mean
0: charlie's war is
1: is a stone cold masterpiece there's 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 no denying it it's it's an extraordinary feat of work both both on the part of pat mills but uh, but you know uh, joe calhoun's artwork is is like career defining sets him up there with any 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 international great artist be it your alex Toth's or your alex raymonds or your or, or, or or your you know, anybody from across the world, your Tezuka's, uh, Joe Colhoun's work on that is just exemplary. It's like it, it is the pinnacle. I mean, Charlie's War is the greatest war comic ever, ever, ever made, uh, without a doubt. Um, but it's interesting, though, that that the one thing I'm looking forward to do as we kind of move forward is, is, is get some of the stuff out there. There are within the, the War Picture Library, Battle Picture Library sides of things there, you know, there is. I think there's a there's a commonality where you have where the same writers and artists are working on war comics all the time. But they're kind of like every 10th issue, you know, because it's boring to write the same story and over and over again, they would turn everything on its head. So you suddenly have these quite um, surprising like there's a Hugo Pratt um, uh, uh, War War Picture Library uh, volume about jungle warfare from about 1962 or three and um uh it, it, it's basically uh apocalypse now uh in, in many ways and with the horror of war and this terrified person's part of it and the rest of it and um i mean it's not got the nuance of charlie's war but it but it really is a, a really surprising and interesting story and, and and you get you just get the feeling that you know that the guys were were, were, were not were not interested in doing the same old you know, kind of let's Battle a Britain style. Let's uh, let's go and kick some you know, insert racist epithet you know Japanese uh, Japanese butt. Uh, but instead, did something much more much more interesting. And there's a lot, there's an awful lot of that in that archive. So it is it is that picking and choosing. But then, but then you know, un- undoubtedly, the, you know that the, the the revolution of the 70s and the 80s did 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 happen and did fundamentally shift the story and change change what British comics, you know, could be and, and you know, and, and, and have become.
0: Just to go a little little back beyond that a, a, again and highlight, uh, I think my favourite purchase so far from the Treasury of British Comics, which is your first volume, Collecting Together the Faceache uh, Strips by Ken Reed.
1: Yeah, no. Well, you know, isn't that amazing? Ken Reed. So I, you know, I was not a funny comics reader by and large. Um, so, so I, I never read Buster and I never read Monster Fun and, 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 and most of the funnies passed me by and I hadn't heard of Ken Reed. And I consider myself as somebody who's been working in the industry for long enough and, 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 you know, I'm constantly think, oh, I'm, I'm reasonably well informed. And then I, then, then there's suddenly this whole new vista, this whole new part of comics opens up to me and I go like, oh God, I know nothing again. Um, but Ken Reed, yeah, Ken Reed is an absolute genius. Um, Ken Reed and Faceache is a collection of his stories about basic um, who can contort his face into any shape he wants and always gets into uh, scrapes thereby It uh, it 's a remarkable piece of work, but it 's also remarkable that it 's his first ever collect- it was the first ever collection to collect Ken Reed into a book form um, and 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 you know Alan Moore comes out to you know, write the introduction to that book because he was such a uh, an influence on him, Alan Kevin O'Neill and, and others, uh, and Pat Mills too. Um, uh, but the, also, you know, Alan Moore's introduction to that book is, is really eye-opening because he talks about that madness that there was in the 1960s and you know late 50s, but then 1960s uh, British comics. There's that there's that real grotesquery and a real kind of kind of warping, of, which is everything that Kenry does, warping the kind of the everyday into the grotesque, and and, and Moore talks about that actually being Very possibly, you know, a a psychological um, uh, expression of the post traumatic stress that the entire nation had come under. The entire, you know, the nation had been through this awful traumatic war experience, uh, which had left cities and landscapes devastated and take decades to recover. And everybody had moved on very, very quickly about it. Nobody goes on about it and the rest of it. And, and, you know, and, and so um the actual like you know, the, the psychic trauma is expre- you know finds expression in this most unlikely of places in, in 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 the kids humor comics uh where you've got an artist of the caliber of ken reed writer as well um um you know kind of kind of twisting the world around you and, and before your very eyes as uh, the only way of dealing with it
0: realistically ken reed should be framed alongside the goon show and the pythons as like you know the, the pinnacle of british absurdist humour and hopefully these you know these books will help to to get that that message message out there and, and let people see you've you, you've also done collections um from uh, Wham, Smash and, and and the Creepy Creations collection. So
1: yeah, there's a third one coming soon. Yeah, there's Creepy Creations which is kind of all kind of his color pin-ups where kids used to uh, were invited to send in an idea for a for a, for a, some kind of grotesque monster and then Ken Reed would give it life uh, and so that you know that's, a, that's 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 the strangest coffee table book you're ever going to come across.
0: <laughs> well, until Worldwide Weirdies gets published of course.
1: And well why well it's well inacting well, exactly. well we've got another year, exactly another one coming up in 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 December of this year, and so uh, I mean it really is an absolute. Like, like you know, it it it's opening that treasure chest and then just saying, oh, oh my God, there's this and there's this and then there's that and then you know there'll be Martha's Monster makeup down the line and and and, and things. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, there, there's untold riches. With the thing with the, with the treasury list is that everybody keeps um, saying, oh, when are you going to do this or when are you going to do that? And it's just like we're doing one up, one to two books a month, which takes. But we've got no original artwork, um, so we're doing it all um, from scanning the comics and cleaning it up. But you wouldn't be able to tell it wasn't from the original artwork because of the extraordinary team that we've got working on it. But there are four people who work full time cleaning up these pages to put one to two books out a month. And it takes uh, anywhere between two and four months to clean up 90 pages of artwork uh, into 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 the state that we do it. So there's a huge investment going into getting these books right and getting them out there. But then you can only do so many at a time, basically. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, there are so many favorites from people who were do remember it. But then I think, you know, it's also thinking about what's going to work now that is not, you know, somebody doesn't have to be an aficionado for the history of British comics to uh, to enjoy these things. That's 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 a real key for us is that anybody needs to should be able to come in and just just that's why we spend so much time laborious in making the art look as good as it does is so that people can just literally react to the pages in front of them without without the context and just go like oh my god this is life changing
0: yeah the, the, the only books I, I, I personally own from the new collections are the Faceache uh, book and the 13th floor collection in both cases the artwork is immaculate and uh, looks incredible
1: yeah and again and, and all done entirely from, from comics that were printed on the worst cheap wood that were not designed to last that the blacks weren't solid blacks and the plates were slipping and and oftentimes you only have one copy of something because you know the other one is 300 quid on ebay or whatever it is and you know and so it is really or or, you know it it, it just yeah the the challenges in doing it are are not insignificant but the reward when you see when you when you read a book and it's just pristine and it's crisp and it's clear and you just you know and, and there's nothing standing between you and the story as it were you and the artwork Uh, That's what we're trying to achieve. That kind of that kind of thing, where it's not like, because there are some of those, you know, other publishers have done collections of, you know, historical comics, and you and you really you feel the age and you feel the distance between yourself and that, uh, simply because they haven't, you know, they haven't cleaned it up in the right way, or they haven't spent the time or invested the energy in making it look as crisp as it should do. Um, And instead, that's you know, when you have something that just looks. As almost as if it's just come off the artist's board. You know, the blacks are rich, deep blacks. The lines are crisp and clear. And so you're you're just engaging with the brushwork and, and, and you know, and the story and, the, you know, as it's been laid out on the page for you to enjoy. That's, you know, that's where you need to get to.
0: Yeah, I can enjoy a facsimile edition, but the difference between that and what you're putting out is, you know, is worlds apart, and, and it as I say, just, just beautiful. One of the titles that um, I'm particularly looking forward to, I know it's one you've had issues with along those lines, is Billy's Boots, which you've had to push back, haven't you?
1: Oh, Billy's Boots, yeah, absolutely. So the funny thing about the most popular strips, and we had this problem with Bella as well, um, Bella at the Bar, is that the most popular strips were always on the inside of the front cover, and... The, on this awful old paper, the the front covers would the front covers would be color, and the color would bleed through. So that if you scan a you know the the inside page, you're not just getting the inside page, you're also getting the front page that's bled through. And so to separate, and there is no. Simple procedure there are various procedures one goes through to remove it but there's no simple procedure to go oh no i didn't mean that stuff bleeding through i just mean you know the stuff on this side of the page the computer doesn't work that way so you know it's you know in some in many instances for those books it's like it's it's not just every panel it's every line in every panel that needs to need to need to be worked on and that 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 is time-consuming, and Billy's Boots is one of those things, especially when there's colour on the back of colour, and you're, and you're trying to get it to, to, to be... Because there's no point putting out a book which has all that bleed-through, which has that you know that, that, that noise between you and it. That's, that's not what you get. Interesting, you know, when, when, when some of this stuff, and a lot of this stuff was obviously published for kids, although it stands the test of time and can be read by all ages, but, but the kids that it was aimed for at the time... Didn't care about the bleed through. They, you know, you would ignore that. You know, as you're reading the original comic, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a factor.
0: It was just how comics were. You just accepted it. You are like this is how it's been read. You'd, you'd never imagine it being. You know, a hardback, beautifully bound, <laughs> immaculately printed comic.
1: Exactly. Well- also, you know, but but you know, you know, things these days. It's 4K TV screens and you know 1080p or whatever, and you know, and every everybody's used to a, a crispness and a quality, even in printing. You know that, that that you know everybody expects everything to be absolutely mint, and uh, and so yeah, so so you know j- just to just to not fall over at the first hurdle of somebody picking up a book and flicking through it and going eh, maybe not. Um, it is uh, well, uh, well I love the way those people like Sonny um, um, Charlie Chan Hoc Chai um, Sonny Luke exactly excuse me um, you know what he does in, in that book is is actually work with that that patterner of age you know and he he actually recreates it in, in a very very clever way so there's you know that can also lead to creative things but you uh, we know no, we're all about we're all about subtracting the noise and just leaving the message
0: well just to give it a, a slight Avery Hill uh, twist as well we've got a creator George Wylasol who as part of his process, will sort of produce art, scan it, photocopy it, rescan it to try and get sort of lines of work and little bits of scuff to it to sort of, you know, to create an impression uh, on, on, the, on the page. So, you know, there's different ways to approach it. But as I say, I think um, your decision to go as crisp as possible has, has paid off massively. Yeah, I think sometimes it's
1: required. You know, noise can be a wonderful thing, but it's got to be the artist's choice. I mean, that was the when when I was in Angoulême and I saw the uh, Will Eisner show a few years ago. The amazing thing, because normally you go and see you see original artwork and you're like, oh, you can see the brushes there and that, you know, that you know, it's 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 a revelation to you how the artwork on the page is ever so slightly different to the artwork in the printed comic. And then I went to the Will Eisner show and the man was such, such an absolute genius that he knew he knew exactly what he needed to put on the page to for it to then be in the printed comic and anything that wasn't going to do that was absent so it was strangely enough it was wonderful to see his originals but there was no extra noise as it were there was no there was there was no added thing he he he, he was such a genius at, at what he was doing that there was no there was no loss of messages there was no loss between the between the original page and the printed thing he was just he was an absolute master of getting all that you needed uh so yeah so but but again you know it's just it's it's fascinating how the medium offers you the different ways of you know of working with with the printed image against you know the original image
0: along those lines one of the things i've I've noticed you're you're planning for this year is uh a, a new format for some of the books which is going to start with the steel commando collection
1: oh yeah the digest format yeah absolutely yeah well i think i think it behooves us to um to try and do different things. So there's one thing is offering a nice, you know, a nice hardback book, uh, which is not expensive, but still it's a hardback book and it's over a tenner. Um, and and uh, and then finding something that's not disposable and throwaway, but is, but it, you know, but by the same token, it is something cheaper, is something that maybe you don't feel you have to invest in mentally and spiritually as well as you know financially, but you can you can, you, can, you, can, you you can enjoy some of the funnies with as much painstaking repographic work as the others but you can enjoy the funnies in a different format just so because because Steel Commando is a very funny and curious beast um but but you know not everything is a masterpiece but not being a masterpiece doesn't mean it's not an absolutely fantastic read if you see what i mean and 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 so we're trying to find different ways of 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 finding readers for the, for, for for this stuff and and getting, giving it the opportunity to kind of in it for itself
0: to go back to a point you made earlier as well if you look at Steel Commando as a comic, I think it's it's shadow looms large in you know the work of Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill in particular. That absurdity and that hu- that sort of humour is certainly prevalent in their work, and you can certainly see a connection there to to pieces like that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that you know I think you can pick up any of these comics and go like, oh, that seems to be the thing that I thought came from there, but they're doing it here, and you know, it's just it's, it's just it's an unending. Kind of, you know, kind of, kind of revelation of, 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 how ideas get seeded, uh, and, and then kind of recur and then, and, you know, inspire something else later on. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was funny. I was, I was talking to, um, to Tilly Walden, Avery Hills Tilly Walden, um, because she did, um, was great and did a, a short strip for us in the 2008 special last year. And we I had the opportunity to talk about some of the girls' comics and the rest of it and, 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 and the different, you know, stories that were being aimed, were being told just for girls it's funny because we've got to a point now where we like there's got to be sorry we've got to a point um where uh you know there's the diversity conversation is happening now as it absolutely should and we're looking at at stories that are good for girl readers as well as boy readers but you've got this explosion in america with the rainer tell of this world and the, the, the the graphic novels that are coming in that thing but then To understand that actually before it went away in the 80s and girls comics disappeared and were replaced by teen magazines, there was this absolute plethora of, you know, tens of different comics all aimed at girls telling stories with girl protagonists who were brave, but who were weak, who were courageous, who were scared, who were devious, who were honest and and you know the, the gamut of emotion and 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 humanity um and 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 it all it all existed there as a, a, you know as, as storytelling available you know available for you i mean not all of it was wonderful and some of it was retrograde and 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 it certainly wouldn't have engaged in you know you know uh or, you know the the reality of the world as we have it is now but it but it was very much girls seeing themselves um you know in stories as 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 the main characters and that and that and that the fact that that existed and then went away, really interesting to Tilly and to talk about, you know, how, how, how these things happen, because of course she's, she's kind of beyond her engagement with anime and, and and Miyazaki and that kind of thing is almost self invented in her, in her own way of of doing comics. It's it's funny to see how there are sympathies, I think, between some of the interesting work that was done in the seventies, which obviously had no, you know, no direct influence on Tilly's work, but, but then, you know, you see, you see certain, themes or certain, you know, just just notions of comics recurring.
0: Just to pick up on that thread and, and to, to wrap things up, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about is a title that's very uh, close to being released, which is Fran of the Floods. Yeah,
1: Fran of the Floods. That's great. Um, a, a girl at school, she's, you know, not getting on with her sister, uh, but she wants to be in the school concert, but then she's going to steal her sister's dress and her sister's has this new dress, and then the floodwaters rise and rise and the headmistress is trying to keep everybody's attention on the school and mum and dad seem to be stocking up on food in the kitchen but it's only because there was a sale on the supermarket love don't need to worry and then the floodwaters continue to rise and suddenly the town is full of refugees and it's got really hot and the waters keep rising and suddenly the world is completely changed and the electricity's gone off and there's no more communication and people are disappearing and uh, and their floodwaters have risen so much that everybody's been carried away and then they're stuck on land and then and 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 then it's this post-apocalyptic landscape where 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 uh, Fran is trying to make her way north to the last place that she thought her sister might be and 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 it is absolutely climate change and and and, and social you know and 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 you know and migration and um and and refugees, and, and, and all of these things. And it's just like, oh, wow. In short, Crown of the Floods, remarkable, prescient, the tale of the 70s, a tale of a... It's got a really British apocalyptic feel to it as well. It's got that kind of John Wyndham-esque thing going on, yet with all of the concerns that we have now. So, yeah, I recommend anybody pick it up.
0: No, I'm really looking forward to it. Ben, thanks so much for talking to us. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Steve.
1: I, I, I wish I had more time to talk about the Avery Hill comics that I've got in my collection. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, all the way through this conversation, all I've been thinking is we'll have to get Ben on again because this is all gold. So <laughs> best of luck with uh, all the forthcoming books and all the exciting projects that I know you've got underway over there. Thank you very much indeed, Steve. Great to talk to you. Thanks to Ben again for talking to us. And thank you for listening. See you next month. This show is a Hold Fast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other programs you may enjoy.